Would you bow with me once more? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, that your word is living and active. You are a God who cannot lie, and so all your words are truth. You are the way, the truth, and the life, and we pray that as we hear from your word, that you would speak to each one of our hearts. Speak through me, your servant. Give me the energy and the boldness I need to speak clearly, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last Sunday, we remembered Pentecost. The very first Pentecost Sunday is, of course, the occasion when the Holy Spirit was first poured out upon his disciples. And following that event, on the very same day, Peter stood up and preached a powerful sermon, which concluded in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2 with this instruction. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, on that day, some 2,000 years ago, 3,000 people heard the message, responded to the invitation, repented of their sins, and were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That was the day that the church was born. It was the church's birthday. They were the first, but certainly not the last. For today, some 2,000 years later, Philip, Carter, and Luke are adding their names to the list of those first 3,000 who are baptized in Jesus' name. For as we have just heard the testimony from their own lips, they too believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord. They have repented of their sins. They have placed their faith in him. They have received his forgiveness. They've been adopted as children into God's family. And they are now ready to enter the waters of baptism in Jesus' name. We should also acknowledge here this morning that coming up on this platform and making the public declaration that they just did to share their testimony of their personal, uh, the personal work of God in their lives, it's not an easy thing to do, was it? But it feels good that it's done now, doesn't it? (laughs) There's no better feeling. If If you've experienced this, you know what I'm talking about. There's no better feeling than having that moment where you've had all this build up in your mind for weeks and weeks and then it comes and then you do it, you get through it and then you're sitting there and the relief that now it's done and I don't have to do that again. It's a good feeling. Some of you might know what I'm talking about. Unless, of course, you get my job and then you know you got to do it again next Sunday anyways. So, But you know what? It's such a special thing to hear what they just shared with us. It took a lot of courage and conviction to do and to share what they just did. It's indeed one of the biggest steps of your life. For today is the day that you will lose your life. Now, you don't look too shocked by that. No one one sounded, uh, hey, what's he talking about? Well, let let me explain. Today is the day that you willingly lose your life so that you may find it in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, Jesus said... Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Then in John chapter 12, verse 25, he says, The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, the truth is that at some point, we will lose everything that this earthly life offers us. It's just a matter of time. 
We cannot hold on to our youth, no matter how hard we may try, no matter how many times we go to the gym or how much beauty cream we apply. We cannot hold on to our youth. We cannot hold on to our physical strength or athletic ability either. And unfortunately, that's something I'm becoming increasingly aware of. We cannot hold on to our wealth. We cannot hold on to our health. We cannot hold on to our mental capacity. We cannot even hold on to our loved ones. And one by one, no matter how tight our grip, they will each be taken from us. And Jesus is teaching us this great paradox. If you try to hang on to this life and the things of this life, you will lose it. For like a handful of fine sand, no matter how much you grab, no matter how tight your grip, if you have that fine dry sand in your hand, what will happen? It will eventually all trickle between your fingers and be gone. There's nothing left. But here is the paradox that Jesus points us towards. If you die to this life and the things of this life by willingly letting go of it, opening our hands, and then surrendering all of it fully to Jesus Christ, then and only then you will discover the true life that does not end. It is the abundant life that is for this life and today, and it is the eternal life that will go on beyond this one into eternity. Corey Ten Boom once said, I have learned to hold all things loosely so that God will never have to pry them out of my hands. So let me ask you, where is your grip today? What are you holding on to tightly? This is the example that the Lord Jesus set for us, to hold on to this life loosely so that we may grab eternity with all of our might. A week before the Jewish Passover supper, Jesus had just made his triumphal entry riding a donkey into Jerusalem. The crowds shouted, Hosanna. They lay their coats down, cheering wildly. And in this setting, this parade, this celebration, Jesus of all people knew what was coming. That he was not riding towards a coronation on a throne with a golden crown on his head. No, he was riding towards a different type of coronation where, yes, he would have a crown on his head, but it would be a crown of thorns. And he knew that he was riding towards betrayal of one of his own disciples. He knew that he was riding towards mockery and scorn and torture and finally cruel death upon a cross. And in John chapter 12, verses 20 to 22, our scripture reading from this morning, if you want to turn there with me, we're going to look a little bit more closely at these verses. There in John chapter 12 and beginning in verse 20, we read that Andrew and Philip tell Jesus that some Greek men would like to meet him and they would like to speak with him. And in response to this request, Jesus gives them a rather strange reply. And this is what he says in verses 23 and 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, any farmer or gardener will immediately recognize what Jesus meant by the seed dying. For when a farmer puts a seed in the ground, he accepts the fact that he will never have that seed again. He says goodbye to that seed forever the moment he puts it in the ground. 
In fact, you may have never thought of it this way before, but spring seeding is like one massive funeral service. Think about it. Across the Canadian prairies, countless millions upon billions of seeds have been buried in the ground and are right now, as we speak, either dead or dying. So it begs the question, if we were to add up all of these billions of seeds that have been willingly put into the ground, knowing they're going to die, if we were to add them all up, they would fill countless grain bins. Why are we sacrificing good grain that could be used and by putting it in the ground? Well, why? We all know the answer. We do so with the hope that the seed will die, yes, but in dying it will germinate and it will grow up and multiply itself many times over. More seeds will be produced, hopefully in the dozens or hundreds, from that very one seed. And so, for many to be produced, one has to die. Jesus was the one. And there always has to be the first one in order for something more to be produced and multiplied. Jesus was the first, the seed who was willing to go into the grave of death so that many could grow forth into the new life of God's salvation. But through, but though Jesus was the first seed to die, he is not the last. For he calls his disciples to now follow his example. John chapter 12 and verse 26, Jesus continues. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. My father will honor the one who serves me. So it begs the question, when Jesus spoke these words, where was he going? Where did his disciples need to follow? Well, we know the answer already. He was going to the cross and the grave. Are we ready and willing to follow? In his book, Written in Blood, Robert Coleman tells the relatively famous story of a little boy. And this little boy finds out that his sister needs a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease that the boy had recovered from some two years earlier. Her only chance for recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the same disease. And since the two children had the same rather rare blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. In fact, the only one they could locate. The doctor asked him, Would you give your blood to Mary? Johnny hesitated. His lower lip started to tremble. Then finally taking a deep breath, he smiled and said, Sure, for my sister. Soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room. Mary, pale and thin, Johnny, robust and healthy. Neither spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny smiled at her reassuringly, his big grin. As the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's smile faded. Then his face turned ashen white as he silently watched his blood flow through the tube. Some minutes ticked silently by. And then with the procedure almost complete, Johnny's shaky voice broke the silence with the question. Doctor, when do I die? As it turns out, Johnny had mistakenly understood that he would have to die so that his sister could live. His death was the price for her healing. And though the cost was high, the boy was willing. For my sister. 
So too, Jesus' death was the price for our healing from the curse of sin. And though the cost was high, Jesus was willing. And as Jesus said in John 10, verse 18, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. You see, not only was Jesus willing, he went through with it to the very last drop of his blood, the very last ounce of suffering, so that on Easter Sunday, with his work finished, complete in every way, he had the authority to raise his life back up again by the power of God, and he rose from the dead, living proof that for all who follow after him, who receive that invitation to go with him to death and the grave, that death is not the end. It is the beginning of life without end. Now, since Jesus has already done this for us, let me ask again. Are you ready and willing to follow him wherever he leads? T.G. Ragland once wrote, If we refuse to be kernels of wheat, falling into the ground and dying, if we will neither sacrifice prospects nor risk character and property and health, nor when we are called relinquish home and break family ties for Christ's sake, then we shall abide alone. But if we wish to be fruitful, we must follow our blessed Lord himself by becoming a kernel of wheat and dying. Then we shall bring forth much fruit. So let me ask you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, If you have received his invitation to come, follow me, if you are doing that right now, let me ask you, how much are you risking for the Lord? Ask yourself this, am I willing to risk it all for the one who risked all for me? You see, every time a farmer puts a seed in the ground, he risks everything. He risks losing it all. It could be too wet and the seed will drown. It could be too windy and the seed will blow away, or it could be too dry and the seed will wither and die. But if the farmer does not take the risk and is instead content to hold on to his little pile of seed, he will always wonder why he never gains any more. It is exactly the same for the follower of Jesus Christ. No risk, no reward. You've all heard that before. It's the same in the spiritual life. No risk, no reward. If we just squirrel everything away and hold on to this life and what we have and don't risk anything for our Lord, don't expect to produce anything for your Lord. But if you let go of your life, you open your grip, you put your seed in the ground, you will find an abundant life, not only for yourself, but for the many who will come to Jesus because of your sacrifice. Now at the outset, I told Luke, Carter, and Philip that today is the day that they will lose their lives. And while Lord willing, that isn't the case physically today, it is spiritually. The very act of baptism is an outward and physical display of an inward and spiritual transformation. Romans chapter 6 and verses 4 to 6 puts it so well. The Apostle Paul wrote this, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And so like a seed going in the ground, going under the water symbolizes that our old selves are dying. Our own sinful ways have been crucified with Christ on the cross. And now going into the grave, putting those things to death, putting them behind us, we come up out of the water into new life. The resurrection victory that is in Christ is now ours. His victory becomes our victory. His life, our life. And so Jesus invites each of us to follow him to the cross and there by faith believe that his death was my death and then receive his victory over sin and death as my victory over sin and death. And when we do this, we have, as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, we have been bought with a price and your life is no longer your own. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. When this happens, a transformation occurs. Suddenly, our lives have a purpose and eternal significance. They are elevated far above the petty and selfish concerns of this life, of what can I get, what can I accumulate, how much fun can I have. Life takes on far grander purpose than just those trivial matters. Those old, selfish questions of what do I want and what do I get out of this transform into this. What does Jesus want? How can my life glorify him in this situation? This is what happens when we are identified with Jesus in every way. And a life lived this way, though from a man's perspective, from an earthly perspective, it may look like they just threw their life away. A life lost. But in reality, from the only perspective that matters, the eternal perspective, God's perspective, it is a life found. It is a life that has been found in Jesus. So now, what what does the things that I've just explained to you change? Does, does this change the fact that it's easy to do this, to just sacrifice our lives and our own self-interests for God? Does this make it just a walk in the park as though it's no big, no big deal? Well, absolutely not. If we return to John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus, knowing what was coming, knowing what he would have to endure and how hard it was going to be, he said this, my heart is troubled. My heart is troubled. I love the fact that Jesus, the son of God, said his heart was troubled. I just love knowing that though he was God in the flesh, he still felt the sorrow of what was to come. He felt every doubt and fear that I feel. He felt every temptation and anxiety and discouragement, but the most incredible thing is that he overcame every last one of them. You see, Jesus could have just asked his father to spare him. He didn't have to go through with it. But he understood that his purpose, his very reason for coming to earth, was far greater than to simply live out his days as comfortably as possible. He embraced and accepted that his mission was to become the kernel of wheat, to die on the cross so that many could live. And I'll confess that in my life, in my 34 years to date, I have asked God to spare me many, many times from having to go through difficult circumstances. I've asked him to spare me from temptation and trials of all types and sorts. But slowly I'm beginning to learn that there is a better example, and that is Jesus. 
that instead of praying, oh Lord, spare me from every trial or temptation, to pray instead, Father, in this trial, in what I am going to endure, glorify your name. Because here's the thing. If you've already died with Jesus, if your sins have been forgiven, death has been defeated, and you know that eternal life with him in heaven is your destination, then what on this earth is there left to fear? What is there that could be thrown your way? What circumstance is there that could so shake you that you would be, be stolen the joy of salvation and the reward of eternal life? If the answer is nothing and no one, then what do we have left to fear? We can live this life full of joy, full of courage, and with boldness following after Jesus and living, and if need be, dying, just as he did, so that many more can live. There's a true story of a 23-year-old man by the name of Patrick Harris who lived in Scotland in the year 1527. Young Patrick Hamilton had Pardon me, young Patrick Harris had all he needed for success. Born of royal blood, he was intelligent and talented, pleasant and gentle. While at school, he embraced the teachings of Martin Luther. With Luther, he felt that the Bible, not the edicts of the established church, held the true foundation for the Christian faith and the relationship of each person to God. Soon, Patrick found his views getting him in trouble with his local church government and the crown authority. So he escaped to Germany. There at the University of Marburg, he experienced a great and radical transformation. Where before he had been skeptical and timid, he now became bold and courageous. Each day he increased in knowledge and inflamed with godliness, he decided to return to Scotland to take the truth of God's word to his own countrymen. When he returned to Scotland, he immediately began to preach the truths that he had learned. After a short time, he was ordered to appear before the archbishop. He was so on fire with his message that he did not wait for the appointment, but came early in the morning. Although he argued with the archbishop powerfully, he was still arrested, charged as a heretic, sentenced to death by burning. He was cast into prison to await his fate. While in prison, many tried to get him to change his mind, or at least convince him to stop preaching his beliefs and disturbing the established church so they might yet let him go. But Patrick did not back down from his stand. In fact, his faith became even more bold while in prison and so contagious that even a priest who had come to visit his prison cell attempting to get him to change his mind was also converted by his testimony. Finally, the day came for Patrick to be put to death and he was led away to be burned at the stake. Tied to the scaffold, the handsome young man turned to his servant and comforted his servant by saying, What I am about to suffer appears fearful and bitter to the flesh. But remember, it is the entrance to life everlasting, which none shall possess who deny their Lord. Then when his executioners had difficulty keeping the fire lit, Patrick used it as one last opportunity to preach to those who had gathered Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, he called out. And at last, as the fire consumed him, he cried out one last time, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As the smoke from the blaze still lifted skyward, someone dared say to his persecutors, If you are going to burn any more, 
you had better do it in a cellar. For the smoke of Patrick's burning has opened the eyes of hundreds. You see, my friends, being a follower of Jesus Christ does not mean playing it safe with our lives. It means being willing to risk it all for a higher purpose, no matter the cost. In fact, is it really even a risk at all when we have already been given God's eternal assurance and guarantee? So may we each resolve to be bold as we live for him. For to keep your life is to lose it. But to lose your life for Jesus is to gain it for eternal life. Amen. Father in heaven, this is your word, and we receive it as such. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example, that you counted the cost, and you were willing to go through with it to the very end, the very last drop of your blood, every last ounce of suffering, You drank the cup in full. And so, Lord Jesus, as you said to your disciples all those years ago, you've said here this morning to us, if anyone would come after me, let him pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Lord Jesus, this is a great calling. It is not one that in human power we can live, but in your power it is one that we can live out fully. And so I pray, Lord, here this morning that as Carter and Luke and Philip have taken this calling as their own and they are following after you, I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be their strength and their guide from this day until their last day. That no matter the calling, whether it seems great or fearsome or if it seems small and insignificant, nothing done for you is in vain. And so I pray that you will strengthen them. I pray that you will guard them from temptation and that when the day of attack comes, when the enemy comes knocking, I pray that they will send you to the door and that you will be their defender. And so, Lord Jesus, we commit our lives to you willingly as you willingly gave yourself for us. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.